0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Bill Grant, co chair of the Club's Health and Medicine Memorandum Forum, and chair this program. A great pleasure to introduce today's program. First, Derek Kosberg, director of the Reimagine Life Festival. We'll start the event with about a three minute Reimagine introduction.
2: Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to Finding Humanity at the End of Life, which is part of the Reimagine End of Life Festival, um, which explores death and celebrates life at more than 250 events across the San Francisco Bay Area. And this community driven initiative, sparked by Reimagine, a new nonprofit organization that believes by facing death, we begin to live more fully. And your support in the forms of your presence, your participation, your feedback, and your donations helps make this festival possible. So thank you. And um, we have uh, created a special takeaway um, for each of you, um, which is uh, the End of Life Times, um, which uh, is a newspaper. um, And um, it is a collection of writings and art um, from people in our community who have been putting on events this week. And um, I, now to uh, set the stage for tonight's program, um, there is a short reading before all of our 250 events. And if you wish, you can close your eyes um, as I read Reimagining's opening intention. Why are we here? It's a big question about life and about death. Perhaps we start a little smaller and first ask instead, why are we here in this place together right now we're here to create a brave space we're here to explore big questions with a shared spirit of curiosity humility and empathy we're here in community none of us is alone And together, we can help inspire one another, ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities to engage in meaningful conversations about living and dying well. We're here to reimagine end of life, to envision a world in which we are all able to reflect on why we're here, to prepare for a time when we won't be, and to live fully right up until the end. We're here. Thank you.
1: Uh, Now, short bios of the speakers. First, we have Jessica Zitter, M.D., uh, Masters of Public Health, practices in intensive care unit and palliative care at the County Hospital in Oakland, California. She is an author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Her essays and articles have appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Huffington Post, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and other publications. Her work is featured in the Oscar and Emmy-nominated short documentary, Extremis now streaming on Netflix. She is a nationally recognized speaker on the topic of dying in America. Cynthia carter Per Elliott, MPA, is co-founder and executive director of the Alameda County Care Alliance Collaborative, a faith-based program in partnership with local clinical, academic, and community organizations. The ACCA Advanced Illness Care Program helps persons needing advanced Illness care and their caregivers address spiritual, advanced care planning, health, both physical and psychosocial, social and caregiving needs by empowering participants and linking them to trusted resources in the community. Cynthia is also a motivational speaker and recording artist, having a passion for inspiring others to live their best life now. Corey L. Kennard is pastor of Amplified Christian Church and has served as an activist in the field of healthcare care for over 20 years uh, with over a decade of experience in the areas of palliative care and hospice. His work includes leading a spiritual care team at one of Detroit's largest hospitals and formerly serving as faculty lead at, for Duke University's Institute on Care at the End of Life National Training Program appeal. In this role, he was instrumental in co-creating a national teaching module for understanding spirituality at the end of life for African Americans. <laughs>
3: Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to see all of you. I'm so thrilled that you're here. I am Cynthia carter Perelliot and just thrilled to be your moderator tonight. Now, I have to tell you. This is going to be really cool. (laughs) I'm just preparing you because we have with us two incredible people that I have had the distinct pleasure of working with. Uh, Corey, Reverend Corey Kennard. And I had the opportunity to work together with the appeal program that you heard about in the bio uh, a bit earlier. Um, You'll get to love him. Trust me before the evening is over. Dr. Jessica Zitter. What can I say? A woman amongst women. (laughs) And she didn't pay me to say that. (laughs) So we are thrilled you all are here. Um, We're going to talk about finding humanity at end of life. And this is such a provocative subject, we believe, because the reality is, look around the room. I mean, we're all human beings, and when we talk about serious illness, chronic illnesses, end of life, in the American healthcare care system, it's an interesting question in terms of, are people really being treated the way they want to be treated? In other words, as a human being, is there a sense that the wholeness of you, whatever that represents, your personal being, your background, your ethnicity, what you really value, your spirituality, whatever that might represent for you, or not at all. But the question is, are you feeling honored, respected, and whole? So these two incredible individuals are going to lead us down this path of really <laughs> looking at this issue, marginalized Systems marginalize individuals, and oh, we cannot forget the important component of racial inequities at end of life. So that's what we're going to talk about. Are you ready? Are you all ready? 40
0: minutes. (laughs) Let's
3: go. Let's go. You ready? (laughs) Yes. 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 Let's do it. So, Pastor Corey, I want to start off with you. In terms of your work and what you're seeing and what you've seen in the healthcare systems, mm-hmm. as well as the work that you've done for many years in the community, this notion about devaluing faith leaders mm-hmm. and chaplains. Mm-hmm. I know we've got some chaplains also in the house as well. What are you seeing
4: in your work <laughs> and in the community? Uh, just that, first of all, I didn't get it introduced as a, um, a man among men, uh, but, but that's fine. Uh, that's fine. So we, he's going to hold not that not against me, trust I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> all right. Just... <laughs> but, what, but what I am seeing is this, uh, is that, yes, there is a devaluing of the faith component as it relates to um, being clinically connected and involved uh, with the rest of the clinical care team. Um, Many times and oftentimes as I've led spiritual care, uh, spiritual care departments, um, I've witnessed that there are many physicians and nurses who do not read the notes of the chaplain. Uh, They do not um, make sure that they are aware of the spiritual concerns, needs or situation that the patient may uh, have or be involved in. And and so without that knowledge, you can go into a room. And I was just talking Mm -hmm. with with Dr. Jessica uh, the other day about this. A physician can go into the room and knowing that maybe this person is a person of faith, maybe they have that um, connection or want to make that connection, but maybe there's great spiritual distress Mm -hmm. that the patient is undergoing. And, and if you don't know that and you walk into that room and you say something like, praise the Lord, and that person is mad at God, then now you've made them mad at you. And now you, you've, you've put a wall up, so to speak, because they're not, they don't want to, um, at that moment, uh, maybe be greeted in that way or or be able to process things uh, from that standpoint. And so uh, it's important that um, whatever those issues are or concerns are, uh, that The chaplains uh, are valued or they should be valued uh, and not devalued in the way that they are. And when I say devalued, I don't think that it's intentional. I really don't. I don't think that it's something that, you know, a physician is going to go in and say, I'm not going to read their notes. I just don't think it's a part of the the culture, Mm. the medical culture enough. Uh, And and I don't know about you, but you were not taught to. Make sure that you read the chaplain's notes, right?
0: Well, I was taught eventually. Yeah,
4: eventually, but (laughs) But not in med school. No way. Mm -hmm. No, no.
0: No, what (laughs) we're taught in med school is be scientific. Don't think about religion. Religion is not science. And we are actually actively taught. I mean, and frankly, it's part of the hidden curriculum. This isn't even an active thing, right? You know, theoretically, you're supposed to appreciate chaplaincy and, you know, it's part of the team. But in reality, there's this thing called the hidden curriculum that that, that teaches most physicians. And it's sort of what is on the wards forget the classroom forget what you talk you know you told about cultural diversity appreciating spirituality what happens on the wards is that we essentially are taught to ignore everything except the physiology everything except the creatinine everything except the blood pressure and we really put aside um all things human and 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 by the way it's just a quick anecdote my sister-in-law is very sick and she's got a very serious illness and i Put together, she lives in Boston where I did my residency, and I put together this team of like VA team for her, the best oncologist, the best cardiologist, and I pulled in a great palliative care doctor. And I, but I said to her, you know, Sherry, I know you, she's very into alternative medicine, and I told her, Cher, right now we've got to go full guns a-blazing, we've got to do Western medicine to the hilt please, you know, and she's like, coach me, tell me, how do we do this? How do we get things moving? And I said, I don't think you should talk about your alternative medicine questions. I think we should put those to the side. It was the same thing. And I realized as time went on, I was totally dehumanizing her. This is really important to her. Mm -hmm. She said to me, as we started to process it, and I said, I feel so guilty about shutting you down. She says, you know what I realize in my life is I might die this year, but if I die and I haven't given alternative medicine a a chance, I'm going to feel like I didn't do Something that was important to me.
3: My, very interesting, and even that's a family member that's got to complicate things just a bit more. Yeah, I would tend to think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole other story. <laughs> Jessica, you've you've heard that terminolo- terminology marginalization of the human being. So from your perspective, being in the ICU, palliative care, very connected to the work of hospice, what does that mean from your perspective as a medical doctor?
0: It really means truly focusing in in this weird way, this siloed way where you become. As in when I'm the ICU doctor, what are my priorities? My priority is blood pressure. My priority is heart rate. My priority is keep the blood count high. And, you know, um, I think that we just don't understand. We're not, we're not taught that, you know, frankly, the patient you met yesterday when you came with us to the ICU, yes, his blood pressure is flagging. And yes, but what really he cared about, what he really cared about was talking about God.
4: Yeah. I mean, that's where he was. And that's what makes him human. It makes him whole. Uh, oftentimes we are ignoring. The fact that, you know, this is what defines him or others, many others. And so we have to find out what does define a person, what makes them feel human, what makes them feel whole, and then begin to approach them from that standpoint and then bring in all of the the medicines and, you know, techniques and all of those things uh, during that process. But first we must meet them where they are. And if you never find out who they are, like I said, he wanted to talk to you uh, about God. He wanted to talk to to, to Betty and, and, and mm-hmm. to, to me about, you know, his faith. And, and when we ignore that, that can cause uh, some of the distress physically Yeah. Uh, that, that he was going through. Yeah.
0: And and let's talk about it. I mean, let's talk about the elephant in the room. I mean, he's an African-American man Mm -hmm. and he's sick and scared and feeling terrible. And you walk into the room, right? And if I walked into the room alone and I'm come in and I say, we need to talk about the fact that your heart isn't working very well and we need to talk. And he was already like, you guys are giving me medicine that's making me feel worse. He thought that our medicine was making his heart function worse. Right. And, um, so he, there was already this trust issue and then you came in the room, you came in the room and you know what? He felt like, okay, wait a minute. There's people who make me feel more comfortable. I feel a certain mm-hmm. amount of trust and then we can do the work. We can work on the physiology. We can work on the spirituality, but we can do it in a way where there's, and I'm not saying you can, you can't have a diverse medical team in most places. Cause we don't, most hospitals don't have right. diversity. Right. You know, diversifying our healthcare workforce is a critical, mm-hmm. urgent issue. But in the meantime, we've got to figure out how to work together in collaborative ways so that we can really get the best of what we need to get.
4: But I also want to say this: that oftentimes patients need a distraction <laughs> from the illness. And if we can give them a distraction from their illness in some way, and so uh, as I was talking with him, um, this, this gentleman, and, and I know we're talking about this one case, and it's, it's a great case though, uh, and um, this gentleman uh, was really admiring my suit jacket.
5: Oh yeah.
4: <laughs> you know, and he said, he said, that's a nice suit jacket you got on there, pastor. You're, I said, right. I said, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And he, and then I said, well, what size do you wear? Because I don't want you to take it from me. And and, and and we begin to talk and laugh and, and yeah. really begin to bond in that way. So there was no prayer. For human me. to human. There was no yeah. you know. I I want. Let's yeah. talk about all these theological yeah. things. Yeah. It was about a suit jacket and, yeah. and the size. And yeah. so I told him that I needed for him to get better. And if he got better, I said I would send you the suit jacket. I would send him yeah. the suit jacket. <laughs> uh, so so you know those types of things. Those types of little distractions can help a patient to get out of the fog that they're constantly in, in that room. Can you imagine? And some of you have been in that situation where you've been staring at the ceiling, I mean, in yeah. walls and, and maybe a window uh, with, with some light coming in. Uh, but imagine being in that position 24 hours a day. And all you can think about is your illness or your sickness. And everybody that comes into the room, all they want to talk about is your illness or your sickness. So if you can get that, that, that what I call um, blessed distraction, Yeah. Uh, then you're able to uh, have at least a few moments to feel like a valued human being.
0: But here's, here's, okay, here's the, here's the terrible little secret. I, I, I don't feel proud to tell you this, but okay. All right. You know, when I'm in my ICU mode and I walk into a room and I see somebody who is on the verge of vascular collapse, really sick, really, you know, prognosis, terrible. How many times have I walked into a room, barely said hello to the person? All I care about, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the drips. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the monitor. I'm looking through the notes. I mean, that is just talk about dehumanizing. I think about how I would feel if someone did that to me.
3: Absolutely. You know, I hear you all talking a lot about really the issue of communication. You're talking about the communication, not only from the healthcare provider perspective and patient relationship, but let's just go into this sacred space of healthcare teams. Mm -hmm. And my experiences have been that they're very siloed, hierarchical in nature. I mean, you know, we're talking about really the realities of what's happening within, you know, the grand halls of medicine, frankly. And Jessica, I'm really curious from your perspective, being behind that holy scenario, if you will, the implicit bias that we know occurs as a result of people just seeing an individual look a certain way or speak a certain way and generalize and have really not a true assessment of that individual. Can you speak about implicit bias and how that really deals with matters of distrust? Yes, because implicit...
0: First of all, who in this room does not have implicit bias? Can someone raise... <laughs> <All> <laughs>
3: seriously, almost. I mean... Tell us what you mean What do we implicit? mean when we what say implicit bi- bias. I mean, Let's just be bias clear. Bias
0: is making a decision about somebody before you know anything about them. And part of the way the human brain works is we do that. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we do that. And the thing I love because I have this perspective, right? I can either be an ICU doctor. I have this whole lot of training as an ICU doctor at the top of this hierarchy. I am not supposed to necessarily seek out any input from anybody my med students, the chaplain, the social worker, the patient. I am supposed to be on high, not speaking much, doing this thing, Mm -hmm. knowing what to do without a lot of input. When I'm on the palliative care team, totally different and by the having these perspectives really gives me a lot of instruction okay because i have these women up here who are checking me all the time <laughs> and um
3: we're checking who each are other the women up by the here way. that you're referring can, to so the audience will well stand know you're up referring to
0: can i can you stand up this is chaplain betty clark who i've been working with and I would say, Ann, Ann James, who I've been working with, chaplain, my mentor, social worker, my mentor. And this is one of our new volunteer chaplains, mm-hmm. who is Flita, who I, I just am so thrilled that you're with us. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this, we're sitting Thank around you. a table. And
3: yeah. yes.
0: <laughs> we, we sit around a table and we talk about patients. And it's interesting because, and Betty brings this up a lot, you know, there's still a little bit of hierarchy, which we fall into. And Betty's always like, wait a minute. And we have to look at that. I think it's a really interesting thing to look at. But there's much less hierarchy in the palliative care world. There's much less hierarchy when you have a chaplain sitting there and saying, but you know what? You're missing something. And you have a social worker saying, what, what are you talking about? This isn't going to work. And that's what brings us to the implicit bias piece. Because if you don't know, if you're on high and you're just kind of making quick judgments, you're going to just make judgments based on what your brain is sort of categorizing people. That patient today, he has very cracked teeth. It's really easy to look at somebody whose teeth are and yeah. dentition is really bad and make a judgment about it. Yeah, right. Right? Mm. I mean, and, and Betty always says, there's always a story. She says it all the time. And there always is. There's always something more than you
4: realize. But there's also the implicit bias that comes from the patient towards the medical staff too, as well. Right. Right. Do you have my best interests at heart? Do I, can I, can I trust you? So, so when a, a white female doctor walks in to the room of a black patient, black male patient, uh, right then and there, they may, there may be some thoughts that Mm -hmm. instantly go through both of their minds. Mm -hmm. And, And so the patient may, may be saying, okay, can I trust everything that she's going to tell me is she telling me the same thing that she would tell a white female patient Mm -hmm. who's in the room next door to me Mm -hmm. and trust me I'm listening Mm -hmm. (laughs) to see what types of things are being said so so with with that being the case uh, sometimes there's this struggle to not only for the physician to 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 try to reach that patient. But there's a struggle for the patient to, to accept what's being given to them yeah. so to speak as well, because of who it's coming from.
0: And you know what, when there's a struggle, guess what? There's this is...
4: progress. Frederick Douglass said, well, that. that's a whole other thing. I
0: don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. That, not this kind that of struggle. That was a quote. This go kind of struggle. Go I'll with go with me. you. Okay. All right. Go that's good. All right. Yeah. But when there's a here's, what's really tragic about this. When there's a struggle, You know what happens? The doctor pulls out, walks away, Mm -hmm. doesn't engage. Mm -hmm. And guess what happens? The Mm -hmm. patient just gets shuttled right onto the end-of-life conveyor belt. And you know what? When we talk about racial inequities, that's happening. Why are more African Americans dying on the ends of machines? Because I think white doctors are... There's many reasons. I think one of them is that I think white doctors opt out of the conversation more. Because it's just uncomfortable. There's a little bit of discomfort. There's a little bit of distrust. There's a little bit of... And you're just like, okay, sure, we'll do that for you. We'll do Sure, we'll put you on this. We'll do this catheter. We'll do that, right?
3: Sure. Dr. Jessica, I have to jump in here because yeah. you said something a minute ago that I'm not sure everyone understood. You mentioned the end-of-life conveyor belt. Did you all hear that? Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that term.
0: End-of-life conveyor belt is literally... It is a, and everyone who works in hospitals knows this. It is a conveyor belt that happens by default when you don't talk, when someone doesn't have the opportunity or choose to opt out of it. It's what happens as a person's body starts to deteriorate, their organs start to fail, as they start to die. We just basically have all sorts of things that we can do to them. We can add, you know, breathing machine. If your heart, if your lungs are starting to fail, we've got shocking and chest compressions and blood pressure support medications. If your heart and blood pressure are flagging, we've got dialysis. If your kidneys are starting to fail, I mean, we've all sorts of things and people just essentially get wrapped in technology as they progress through the stages of dying. That's what the end of life conveyor belt is. And by the way, technology in and of itself, isn't the end of life conveyor belt. Technology can be amazing when used in a way that is a patient-centered and the patient agrees to it and it's, it, their ben- the benefits of it outweigh the burdens for them. But it becomes a conveyor belt when it's just unspoken, by default, protocolized, which is what happens
3: all the time. Mm. So that raises a, an important issue as it relates to advanced care planning, because if individuals don't talk about what they want or don't want as it relates to their health care, dealing with serious chronic illnesses, and ultimately end of life, then they very much can end up on what you call the end of life conveyor belt. So, Pastor Corey, could you just speak from your perspective, working as a chaplain, working as a pastor in community and all of your experiences? You know, how open are people, particularly in communities of color, to address the notion of advanced care planning?
4: Not very open, uh, and and I'm I'm going to just push the envelope a little bit and say um, that that applies to possibly everybody in this room as, as well, um, not just African Americans, but but all people. I, I you know this is not you know we have the death over dinner, dinner death conversation dinner, yeah. or whatever, <clears throat> um, and and I think that a lot of people are really afraid uh, to have the conversation, and if it's not fear, it's it's denial. <clears throat> It's the fact that I'm going to live forever, so I don't want to talk about this. Yeah? And then as soon as someone gets sick and it looks like death is creeping around the corner, so to speak, uh, then there's, for instance, there was a person who was, was um, to get to your, your, your point, there was a person who was um, dying in my congregation. She knew it was just her and her daughter and her two grandsons. She knew that her daughter was not going to have the conversation with her. She knew it. She came to me. She said, look, I need to talk with you. These are some things that I want. My daughter refuses to have the conversation with me about my death. She said, I'm preparing for it. But she's not going to be prepared. So she was like, here's all my information. Here's this is my you know, insurance information, passwords, everything. She said, can you keep it in a safe place? You know, and then when the time comes, can you work with her during this process? Because she is refusing to talk about it. So here's a, a woman who wanted to talk about it, yeah. but her daughter said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And, and there are many children, mm-hmm. there are many siblings, there are many parents who are in that situation to say, I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to deal with it at all. Um, and so it leaves the individuals who, who need that assistance uh, kind of out there alone by themselves, mm-hmm. not knowing what to do. And it creates havoc. Um, um, when that time comes. Uh, and so, but we were able to work through it. But I understood at that moment, which is really, that's the thing that got me interested in talking about advanced care planning, because she came to me and said, this is what I want. There's this thing called advanced care planning. And, and, and I want you to walk through this process with me. And I want you to support me you know, it, during this process. And and I did. That was my introduction. And, and from that point forward, I began the process of really um, seeing the importance of it, and, but also talking with individuals to let letting them know, faith leaders, let them know, look, you need to talk to your people about this mm. because we are good at preaching funerals. <laughs> mm. we're, we're good at lowering people into the ground. <laughs> um, we're good at, 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 at a number of things, but we're not good at it with the dying process mm-hmm. in and of itself. Oh. Those those days, those weeks, those months where there needs to be support and ministry going on or just human to human connection. It's not happening. Uh, and that's because most pastors uh, uh, don't have uh, the courage to talk about it themselves. And so I just, I'm not trying to take up all the time, but I just, no, want, to no, say I just <laughs> want to say this. I
5: just want to say this. Uh,
4: so um, for a while, and I'm, I'm going to, this is like a confession, okay? <laughs> uh, for a while, uh, I was traveling around the country with Dr. You know, Richard Payne, God rest his soul, my mentor uh, in, in, in healthcare. Uh, and um, I was traveling the country with him. We were talking about advanced care planning. We were talking about the importance of it. I mean, we are just just thousands and thousands of miles crisscrossing the country, right And one day it hit me that all of this talking that i 'm doing i didn 't have one. <laughs> but yet I was encouraging everyone else. Mm-hmm. So I shared that story with a group of pastors just a couple of weeks ago uh, in, in Minneapolis. I shared this thought with them and I said, I'm going to be vulnerable uh, for a few years. I was preaching, but not practicing what I was preaching. <laughs> I was being hypocritical. And then there was one pastor that stood up in the room uh, who I know personally. Uh, and he he said, you know what? He said, I'm glad you said that. Uh, because I want to say that today I am calling myself a hypocrite because I've been doing that same thing. Mm-hmm. I've been telling others about it. So it's not just enough to just tell people about it, but you have to do it. Yeah. You have to. And, and faith leaders, uh, that's why, you know, that's my passion. I really want to you know let faith leaders know you have to do this in order to be influential. And with others, otherwise it won't get done. It won't get talked about. We got we have to bring it to our churches, our synagogues, our temples, Mm -hmm. wherever we worship. We have to bring this into those four walls Mm -hmm. uh, and make it a part of our worship experiences so that people will understand the importance of it, because it is a part of life.
0: Well, we're doing some interesting work yes, together on, sure. on with the ACCA, which is an amazing organization, to create a discussion guide around the movie Extremis, mm-hmm. um, which to really bring this idea of how important it is to do advanced care planning to the, faith, to the faith-based African-American community in Oakland. Yes. And what's been really interesting in our work is just this discovery that the experience that physicians, part of the, some, many of the obstacles that physicians have in, in speaking to people about advanced care planning, about death, about facing these important things, is the same obstacles that clergy have. Very similar. That's fascinating. Isn't it fascinating? That it
3: really is.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.
3: I'm glad you raised that point, Jessica. Um, And thank you, Pastor Corey, for giving us a sense of reality um, that we need to fill out advanced directives. We need to do advanced care planning. But the reality is in the faith-based community, you ever heard the saying that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. So, you know, it's a tough subject when you're talking in communities of faith, because there's so much... Um, teaching and preaching, and I love it all. I participate in it about hope and life and yeah. uh, living your life to the fullest, and so forth and so on. But the reality is, we are all going to die, yeah. and so how do we deal with that? So, thank you for approaching that subject. Jessica, and, and, did you have and another point? What the you want? clergy
0: said when we watched Extremists together, yes. and they sort of then started had a dis- discussion group afterwards, and they said, "You know, I, I want my, I want my." my parishioner, my congregants to like me. Mm. I want them to feel like I'm, I, I've got their back. I, I want them to feel like I'm filled with hope and I'm, I'm you know, pushing for, for, it's the same thing that we feel as doctors. I want them to like but that's, me. But
4: it is true. It is true that, that you don't want to be looked at as Dr. Death or Pastor Death.
0: Pastor Death, You, know, right. you, don't, right. you don't want
4: to be looked at like that. Right. Uh, and that, that's the hard part. But when you look at the, <clears throat> and I'm going to say this from my own faith perspective, my own faith perspective is, is built around death and the celebration of death. Uh, And so when you, when you look at that uh, from a Christian standpoint, um, we celebrate death every year around, you know, Good Friday and, and, and and Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate every year. We talk about death and and then, you know, that process in and of itself. Uh, And and I believe that, and and this is, this is food for thought uh, that the entire Bible is filled with advanced care planning. Mm -hmm. When you look on, when you look, when you look at, when you look at, the, the succession, or you look at leadership, or you look at the passing on from a Jewish perspective, yeah, yeah. passing on the blessing from the father to the sons and allowing them to know what their father wants for them and also where their father wants to be buried and, and, and the whole relationship in the, in the New Testament with Paul and Timothy, and which I love to talk about. And I have a, a program called Who's Your Timothy that deals with, do you have that trusted person mm. in your life like Paul trusted Timothy to carry on his ministry knowing that he was getting ready to die? Do you have that trusted person in your life that you can pass the the mantle to, so to speak, and say, "You are important to me. I need you to carry on what I've started, uh, and, and I need you to follow my wishes uh, for me and speak for me when I can't speak for myself."
0: Right, it's, and it's gotten more complicated because in the days of Jacob, I mean, I don't know the New Testament, but in the days of Jacob and and Abraham, and you know, a little
4: people, bit. I've been working with you.
0: But you know, they really didn't have. The end-of-life conveyor belt. They didn't have it. Right, right. They had to make it good. We now, there's a collusion, I think, between doctors and patients where we all, this, we got ancient fantasy of perpetual life. We've been, the like Greek, ancient Greek mess, we've been looking for, for the fountain of youth and miracle pills and all that stuff forever, but now we have this sort of fantasy, which we have always had, but we've got the technology to chase it, which is really dangerous. So it's a different time. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say, oh, do advanced care planning, be like Jacob, be like, but the fact is, you, then you've got Dr. Wonderful over there saying over here. Over here. Well, no, I'm, I don't, t- <laughs> I'm not i t- I hope I'm not. There's, there's no. always something else we can yeah. try mm-hmm. just today. That same patient. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Another patient who's. Someone else. Um, the doctor, you know, we're this is a woman who might be coming to a point where chemotherapy might not be helping that much more. Let's investigate, let's talk to the oncologist, let's find out really is chemotherapy, continued chemotherapy, really helping this person? And if not, let's talk about what else we can offer. And this person wants to hear all of these different options. And her primary care doctor, who's Doctor Wonderful, mm. no names to be mentioned, really feels like wrote a note saying, Hospice. It, we're not ready for hospice. So we get shut down by Dr. Wonderful all the time. He's not ready for hospice. Mm. She's asking for information. She's asking for her options. So this is, it's very tricky
3: stuff. Very tricky stuff in the modern and world. Just
4: ignoring the humanity of the patient, really, right. and, and, and keeping them in the dark. Yeah, that's
3: right. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. I want to take a slight turn in our, in our discussion here, just a bit. <laughs> and, and you all know me to be the keep it real girl. Oh, yeah. So we're going to keep it Uh-oh, real here. Here it comes. It's coming. So I think our, our audience would agree that these two lovely, wonderful folks um, have worked together in various capacities. They've been able to speak across the country about, you know, these very subjects around humanity and racial inequities and and health care uh, inequities. But my concern is in the. Typical healthcare system. We have clear lines of white male doctors. Thanks for bringing gender in. Okay. Heavily. (laughs) We have uh, a lot of female nurses. We have often uh, various ethnicities as it relates to chaplaincy. I'm talking about the palliative care teams, the hospice teams and what they typically look like. And you and I and all three of us know that there really isn't this kind of collaborative Mm -hmm. kind of relationship that you see on on this podium today. That's right. That is. this is rare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. How do. You, Dr. Jessica, you Pastor Corey, in your spheres of influence, attempt to change that culture so that we can have a more collaborative engagement between mm-hmm. the physician and the chaplains and the nurses that are various genders, various ethnicities, ethnicities and so forth. What do you do? I personally learn from them. Thank you.
0: Um, it, It just, it takes learning. It takes people being willing and brave enough to call you out.
3: But Jessica, isn't that humility also? Yes, it's humility.
0: Humility. It's shame a little bit. I mean, it's, it's trying to figure out who you want to be as a preacher, as a doctor, what kind of person do you want to be and really thinking about it. And also having colleagues who are going to really be real with you. That's the only way it works.
6: The health pack program, the health pack program for the future.
0: Oh, well, right. I mean, we have a program at, at Highland where we have a lot of kids from <clears throat> public high schools in, in Oakland who come in and learn how to about health care. And we're sort of trying to promote, you know, a, a much more diverse health care workforce. But that's that's years in the making. So, so but yes. and,
4: and I think that that's our reality that is going to be years in the making, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest. I mean, that's where we are. No, no one's going to be able to snap a finger and go in and say, you know, we need our all of our teams to be diverse and all physicians to listen to other members of the palliative care team and and be humble. Yeah, that's not, you know, and be like Jessica. It's not going to happen right away. Uh, So we have to begin to think about the future today that means we have to go into our grade schools and our middle schools and our, our, you know, our high schools in our uh, inner city areas, in our in our places where there are people of color who have not properly been introduced to the medical field and, and promote and help and inspire them uh, to be uh, a part of a, a great profession, a profession and what I call a ministry service to others. Uh, and, and so we need to bring more value into the eyes of of those young people. And then also, uh, because many kids can grow up and say, well, I want to be a doctor, and they don't know what it takes, right? Right. And so when they get older, they're in a position where they're like, wow, I didn't know it was going to be this much work, (laughs) Uh, you know, and and I didn't know it was going to take all of that. Uh, So, And then they get discouraged, and they don't have that person to kind of push them along. Uh, And so there has to be a demand from that standpoint. And also there has to be, um, a willingness for patients and people of the community to stop accepting the lack of diversity mm. uh, as well. Yes. So I think it's going to be a grassroots sort of movement uh, you know, and, and a movement that says we're not going to accept it looking like this. Yes. Forever.
0: We I have to just mention this because last Please. month we showed extremists to this group of about 20 something or other yes. faith leaders from Oakland. They all watched the movie. As I was watching the movie, which I have watched a lot of times, (laughs) all of a sudden I noticed for the first time to my shock, oh my goodness, there is one African-American physician in this movie and it's an intern. And I said it at the end of the movie. I said, did anyone notice? And none of the pastors, they're like, oh. And I realized it, it's, it's, this peep, it's in my next piece, the whiteness of the American health care system. It is so white. Mm. Even in, in a public hospital in Oakland... And I think we've all become inured. You know, we just, uh, it's the way it is. Like, we just don't, you know, even the pastors in Oakland aren't noticing it. Mm. We have to notice that. Mm. And we had, like when we were in New York City speaking, we walk in, and Mount, where where were we? New York, NYU. We walk out of this elevator. The doors open in this big, fancy New York hospital. We come down into the lobby, the doors open, and there are four paintings. And they were all these paintings of white men. And I looked at Corey and he looks at me and he goes, <laughs>
4: <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> this is my life, but we've got to this, notice this that is
4: the norm, right? This, mm-hmm. is, this is, is what, yeah. and
0: yeah. you knew what I was thinking. Cause oh, yeah. I was I knew just noticing it. You not have it. to say
4: a thing. Yeah. yeah. But, but we've, we have accepted it as being the norm. And, and, and right now we have to say, uh, that, you know, it can be different. And how do we make it different? We have to raise our voices, but there's so much fear with, and, and, and I'm going to say this, um, in the African American community, um, our our older um, men and women in the African American community. Uh, it's almost like there's this this thing that has been taught that you don't question doctors, that you don't you know challenge them in any way. But thank God we got some good millennials who are coming on yeah. um, board no, right that's now true. Who, who, that's who are doing their research, who are saying, you know, is this the only option? Alternative yeah. medicine, things of that yeah. nature and putting yeah. that challenge out there. Uh, but we have to begin to challenge yeah. uh, our uh, medical professionals yeah. uh, as well and say, um, your way doesn't mean that it's always the right way. You know, and I know that's kind of hard you know, to even think about that because your life can literally be in their hands mm-hmm. and you don't want to upset someone just like you don't want to upset your waiter or waitress before your food comes out,
5: yeah. you
4: know, same situation, you know, just maybe <laughs> a little different. more intense.
5: <laughs> yeah,
4: I used to be a waiter. Like, I know. I trust care. me. <laughs> trust me. All right. But if we won't talk about that, that's not an appropriate subject at the, at the Commonwealth. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, it, it's, it's clear that this subject matter, Finding humanity, embracing uh, the significance of seeing individuals and hearing and listening to individuals is an important part. Communication within the healthcare teams, but also listening to the patient family, um, conversation, dialogue, having them open up. We don't have enough time to really delve into some of the very Various layers of this important issue, but we hope we've somewhat scratched the surface <laughs> to cause you to think a little broader uh, from this perspective, both as how the health care providers see individuals when they come in and how people that are patients and families can also view differently the health care system. Provider. In other words, see one another as human beings. Doctors are human, too. Yes. Patients and families are human. So how do we develop this kind of rapport that we see amongst these two individuals? And I believe that they spread that kind of, can I just call it what I see? It's a type of love. It's a compassion. It's care. And you can feel it. And it really makes a difference. So <laughs> I appreciate them. I think it's time for Q and A. Q&A. We'd love to hear from our audience and and uh, your questions.
0: Who's always <laughs> <the> first
7: person? <laughs> you
3: knew I was boiling over.
7: Uh, oh, the last topic that you just talked about about diversity in the field. I think we have to have some um, ownership. In in bringing people in, uh, when I started twenty four years ago as a hospice chaplain in this area, there were only two African American hospice chaplains in the whole Bay Area. Wow, and they were women. And every time I got a chance an opportunity, I would bring a chaplain of color in to the field, um, give them an opportunity tell them about an opening, and we're now more diverse than, than ever. But I think we have to own that. We have to individually own that. And then one more thing, one thing that keeps diversity as from doctors out is money, is insurance totally. companies. Oh. I have had to fight insurance company to get an African-American doctor when they had African-American doctors on their role, on their list, Mm -hmm. when I picked one, they would send me someone else. And I had to fight for months to get the doctor on their role Uh to be my doctor because they wanted me to go because they they keep them out. So we, we have to realize what all of this is. It's not just about education and children, because we have lots of African-American doctors. We have organizations of African-American doctors here in the Bay Area. We have organizations of black nurse associations here in the Bay Area. And it's just a matter of giving them an opportunity, giving them a a chance to be involved and and come in. And so um, thank you. Well,
0: you're bringing amazing. We have the most incredible group of volunteer all, I think all African-American. No, nope, one one man. But Betty no, just... We've got
7: we've got more than that. We've got Asian. We've got... Yeah, you know, we've got Jewish. We've got, we got a very diverse group of Catholics. Good
3: job. Good job. That's, good. That's wonderful. That's yes. I see another question. And on the... Thank you both for a fantastic talk, um,
7: or all three of you. Um, on the issue of the hierarchical nature of the team, um, or even just the the people in general, whether it's a team or, mm-hmm. or just the default crew who's on shift that day. Um, is there any change happening in training so that doctors are being encouraged to take a more holistic sort of social worker chaplain? Are there changes happening at that? medical education level that we can feel hopeful about?
0: I at think all? In, there's hidden curriculum and then there's the real curriculum In the real curriculum, what you learn in school and you learn in your classrooms. Yes. There's sort of this idea of a, uh, you know, this, well, we've got the, we've got the palliative care world to, to model that it's since 2008, we're starting to understand this is a good way to do things, et cetera. But I will tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. Let's keep it real. There is, a pal- there is a discrepancy in power in the world of medicine. Palliative care, when it just comes to medical subspecialties, is towards the bottom. And that is just, I'm sorry to say, in, in most hospitals I've ever worked in, and most palliative care doctors I know feel that way, that we are not respected. Our model of a, a heterogeneous and interprofessional approach is not respected the way it needs to be. I, I, and that's just the sad fact. We've got a lot of work to do in the halls of of the hospital, sadly.
1: Um, A lot of talk has been made about the lack of uh, racial diversity in the medical profession. Another place where there's a lack of diversity is in the caretaker uh, profession, that most of the caretakers in the Bay Area are Filipino. Mm. My concern is that their religious values may be different than my own. At the end of my life, if something happens to me, I just want to die at home as quickly as possible. And I'm concerned that my caregivers... Wishes may be different than my own, and how do I assert my own wishes? Great question.
4: I think, first of all, you need to make it clear in your own advanced care plan that this is what you want to happen, even from a, a faith perspective. Uh, secondly, uh, what what I try to help people to understand is the beauty of spiritual diversity and, and, and the fact that— uh, and, Yes. Is it a reality that people will impose their own faith onto others and and look down upon or frown upon the things that you may want to do as an individual if it doesn't line up with what they want to do? Yes, that is, that is true. Uh, but we're, we're working towards honoring and respecting uh, what a person believes, it's something that's reasonable to do, we should do it. I, I've had Muslim patients who wanted to uh, die and they wanted to face Mecca. They wanted to face mm-hmm. the East, and we, we would turn or rearrange the room so that they could face uh, that direction. Mm-hmm. That's important. It was important to them. And we've had grumblings where, why would we have to do that? And this is not, no, 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 no. We're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know. And you need strong people on staff that will stand up and be advocates. For those individuals as well, so so um, you know wherever you may be, when that time comes, my, my prayer is that people would respect
5: yeah.
6: uh,
4: what you desire from a faith perspective.
6: so first of all, thank you all. Um, this is really just an incredible conversation for me to get to witness. Um, I'm of course, a proponent of educating the next generation to be more diverse, and that's definitely an issue that you know is across the healthcare sector and um, all different you know parts of it. But my question for you would be, if we're impatient and we as a society don't want to wait, considering the complexity of this issue, you know, from a cultural standpoint on us not wanting to talk about aging and dying, and then from a political standpoint of the sensitivity of religiosity today, and then just the lucrative element of business and privatization, If you, say hypothetically, were in front of a room of experts and you had this opportunity to speak with them, I'd be curious, particularly you, Reverend Corey, you know, from your time at Duke, what would be your first step or what would be your silver bullet of how we could now create an impact? Um, Because obviously creating that change in terms of the next generation will take a long time. And, mm. you know, I just feel like, especially in the age of baby boomers, we don't have the time to wait. Oh. So if I could in an ideal world create change and I could tell someone, yeah, what would you want me to tell them?
4: Mm. So, so <laughs> this, wow. If, if, if this really, you know, came to pass, I'd be a billionaire. Right. I mean, just <laughs> that silver bullet. Right. Uh, but, but in a room of experts and, and I have talked to, to people, uh, it, in such a capacity um, where, you know, I would tell them, and this is really the key to life, and it goes back to the whole uh, definition of, of why we're here, the whole title of this Finding Humanity. Uh, my, my thing is, is we have to begin to um, treat people as if they are our own family members. Yeah. And if we don't do that, if, if you as a physician like you have experienced that with your sister-in-law, Already, Mm -hmm. You know, so what would you want for her? What would you want for that person? Uh, We have to begin to be more sensitive to uh, the the differences that we may have, you know, externally. But inwardly, we all want the same thing. And 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 this is my mantra. This is my thing um, that and I, I said this at an event earlier this week. There are three things that people want. All human beings want. They want to be understood. They want to understand and they want to be heard. Mm. They want to be understood in terms of who they are. What is their life like outside of the hospital? I've asked family members to give me a picture of a patient during a great time in their life. Show me, show me them smiling. Show me them actively, you know, involved in life on a roller coaster or whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, They want to understand. They want to understand clearly what's going on. And they want to be heard. They want their voices to be heard. If we are denying individuals those three things, then we are failing them. And we are disrespecting the profession that we went into mm-hmm. for the purpose of serving others. So um, to me, I'll just call them out and say, if you're not doing that, uh, then we're not doing the right thing. And then you need to step away from what you're doing. Uh, and I know that this is hypothetical world, right, that we're dealing with. So, so uh, if you don't if you cannot meet people in those three areas, then you should not be doing the things that you're doing. Uh, and and then there's the whole lucrative aspect of the money involvement, oh, yeah. things of that nature, that, that's what I was that, that gonna drives say. it. You I got, know it's where, <laughs> where you're going. Because yeah, that doesn't that 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 doesn't generate the yeah the millions and billions of dollars. Right. You know, for health care. But love is the key, I think and we, we need to but
0: reward something. people, find mm-hmm. payment systems, mm-hmm. i.e. Zenima. Find payment systems that reward people for good behavior. Uh, you, you got to pay people to do the right thing. you got to measure, um, you guys are doing this at the California healthcare foundation. You got to measure, you know, what, uh, what are the impacts? What, 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 are we, what are we doing? And I really think that this fee for service model, I mean, we've got a lot of payment problems in, ter- in terms of I- encouraging people to do the wrong thing. So we've got to change that. That's, that's going to be a big piece of this as well.
8: It's actually not so much a question because I'm kind of an ideas person and I'm thinking of um, ways that you can make this process better. And so, you know, you can put a bunch of people in the room that are of different ethnic groups and and say, we've got diversity and nothing's going to happen still, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, so I'm just thinking, you know, this doesn't move unless people really understand history, you know? So it's like, if it wasn't for authors like, um, Margaret, uh, no, Harriet Washington who wrote *Medical Apartheid* and and Dr. Drew with post traumatic yeah. slave syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like people need to understand, like we're carrying trauma, you know, mm-hmm. and and this is going through generations. Yeah. And, and if you have folks in the medical field that are just going in with a scientific mind and no understanding of history, and then also very low emotional intelligence. So, so not taking any classes on wow. understanding she's, how to she's communicate. has got it. You should come up here. Right? You're when it comes it. Yeah. to nonviolent communication, <laughs> yeah. understanding he's in feelings. Not understanding anything about working styles and how people communicate best. Like, there's so many other layers oh, yeah. to to approaching being human. Like you said, like treat somebody like they're your own family. But yeah, but what if you come from a family like you really want to run from? Too? Right, you don't like your so, family. Right. Yeah, so that's yeah, so, that, that could be a flaw. So right, we need right. To think about that. Someone then, you love. Yeah, and then yeah. also, mm-hmm. um, um, I mean, this stuff is like you mentioned something about. Um, Technology and how it's it's blowing up, and I like to look at what the AI people are doing Mm because I like to see what what's their you know. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of people out there that are interested in like totally stopping um, dying there because they're all anti aging here in the Bay Area, and they're like, yeah, no, we Mm -hmm. don't have to die at all. And and did (laughs)
0: you hear? Mm.
8: Yeah. So I mean. It's 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 going in that direction too, but we're all still fundamentally human, right? And I love that you said, you know, we need to be understood, we want to understand, um, and be heard. But again, it's this, you know, we're missing some essential points at the beginning, you know, of not understanding our our history, not understanding ourselves, and not being able to communicate that. Um, and I would love to see, um, just because I'm not from the millennial, millennial generation, but for solo agers or families that don't have somebody to talk to, well, then how come there's not, like, an um, advanced care health directive hotline? There's a suicide hotline, so why can't we get, like, a, a hotline where you can talk to people oh. on the phone about it or an app or something yeah. where you can, like, see, you know, there, there's got to be more technology helping folks to just tune into like, yeah. okay – I can find this on my phone right now and just get the beginning one, two, threes about this and, you know, get the there information out There are places to that are trying to do or, those
0: kinds of things, yeah, but, yeah. but you're right. I mean, we just need more.
4: So, so here would be my final thought for, for me, because I have to go, forgive me. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to say there was a time where um, when doctors were very effective. And that's because they actually lived in the community of the people that they served. They made house calls. They did those sorts of things. So they were part of the community.
0: They knew them.
4: And so we're all, so we're all in our silos. We're all separate. Yeah. We're coming in from certain places to serve people that we never meet or interact that's with right. until they are sick. Yeah. And that becomes the issue in society. And so getting that's back right. to raising up people who are willing to live amongst the people that they serve uh, would be one way of uh, yeah. helping to make a difference.
3: Let me just say, it has been a wonderful evening. Thank you, Dr. Jessica Zitter. Thank you, Pastor Corey (laughs) Kennard. It's been my pleasure to be your moderator. And we want everyone to continue to take a look at the end of lifetime so you can continue to see all the wonderful events that are happening in the East Bay and also San Francisco. So thank you all for spending your time with us this evening.
1: I am Bill Grant, uh, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum and chair of this program. We thank Derek Kosberg, Cynthia carter Per Elliott, Dr. Jessica Zitter, and Pastor Corey Kennard for their comments here today. We also thank our audiences here as well as those listening to this recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.